Welcome to Unboxing Fulfillment, the modern B2C fulfillment podcast. I'm your host, Chad Rizucka. And in this episode, I'm joined by Mark Wolfart, president at MWPVL. Mark runs a international supply chain and logistics consulting firm that focuses on design and automation, optimization, and technology evaluation for customers looking to advance their B2C fulfillment operations. Mark, it's a Real genuine pleasure to have you come to the podcast this afternoon. Well, thank you, Chad. It's a pleasure to be here. And, you know, I'd like to always remind our listeners and the guests that come on to the program that the targeted audience are really fulfillment professionals that are just looking to receive some practical advice from our guests. So that's what we'll look to do here in the, uh, the segment we have together that they can really implement immediately. Before we begin and, and dive in, I'd just like to take a moment and, and uh, if you would introduce yourself and a little bit about your company. Sure. Uh, you know, I've been in the business for 35 years now and um, I have been working as a consultant during that entire time period. So uh, I have worked with companies all over the world to design the inside of the four walls of their distribution centers. Some of these facilities are like miniature cities with thousands of people working in them. So the engineering work gets to be quite interesting, especially when you get into automation. And then I've also done a lot of work on the strategic side where we've helped companies figure out exactly where they should be geographically positioned, what the role of the different facilities should be, and so forth uh, to optimize their networks. And then on the technology side, spent a lot of time working with companies to help them evaluate and choose software applications and other you know, types of automation equipment for their businesses. So it's been a great ride. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I like how you just referenced that it's, it's like a mini city. And, and in some cases, at least the town that I came from, it's probably bigger than my hometown in Bertrand, Michigan, but it's a good place to begin, I guess, around automation. You've been in a lot of facilities, hundreds, I'm sure throughout your career. What are some of the big mistakes you see people make when it comes to just automation, whether it's selecting the wrong one or from a cost perspective, too early, too late, which is what are the big you know, mistakes people make when it comes to automation? There could be a number of them. I think taking a step back to a higher level, the, the biggest mistake I see being made out there isn't even to do with automation. It's more to do with who's in charge of the operation. So putting the right people in place at the very top becomes paramount in my mind to making better decisions as you go down through the organization. So you want, ideally, a leadership team that has seen automation before they've been exposed to it in a previous career, and they, they understand the benefits, but also the risks associated with automation. It's not bulletproof. And there takes uh, it's just an awful lot of homework is involved in selecting, evaluating, and putting in the right automation system that's suitable for any company and for any specific warehouse. And the tendency of the vendor community is to over-automate. So there comes a point in time when there's diminishing returns on anything that you invest money in, and it's better to just do something manually than to try to automate everything. 
So those would be, I think, the characteristic of the types of mistakes that I've seen out there. But again, it's really the HR component, putting the right leadership team in place first to enable success downstream. When it comes to automating, is there a standard that you have seen when it comes to just ROI on low-level enhancement technologies, stuff like, you know, pick to light or voice picking, not not major conveyance, but do you find there to be standard return on investment periods based on the type of technology that you look to implement? Uh, I wouldn't use the word standard so much as I would use case by case because I've seen generalities, but I haven't seen anything that I could throw out there to say it's always going to be seven years payback or something along those lines. It's very much a function of volume that goes through the facility. It's a function of the fully loaded wage rates of the labor force within the facility. And it's a function of what percentage of the volume can be automated because uh, you know not everything can be automated. So there's a number of contributing factors that go into the formula. The way that we approach the problem is to gather uh, years in the life of the business that we're studying, you know, all of the order data, all of the item data, all of the inventory data, the movement data, et cetera, and develop an economic modeling tool, which has growth rates and inflation rates that are core assumptions that map out for the next decade. So we look 10 years ahead. And sometimes wage rates might be rising at a faster rate than normal inflation rates, for example. So we have different inflation monitors that we use to predict what labor expense would be like in in the world of do nothing. And then we map against that the world of do something, which might be automation, might be mechanization, might be pictolite, might be anything. And then we look at the capex against those deltas in cash flows, and we can see the timing of when the automation system starts to bring back dividends for the shareholders. And then we can play with the levers. Well, if inflation rises lower or faster and so forth, what's the impact on on the return on investment to shareholder? But the key is to always look at it from a return on investment of after-tax cash flows rather than before-tax cash flows, because you're adding a lot of depreciation expense to the business, which... Um, you know, obviously defers profits and creates a cash flow benefit, but you're also creating a a major outflow of cash in the early years. And there may be an interest expense penalty associated with that, depending on whether how the company's financing that investment. And so we look at the whole picture and we say over the next decade, look, you can see year seven, this is where the, the lines are crossing between the cash flows coming inbound to the business in the world of do something versus you know, the, the lower sloped line, which would be the world of do, do nothing. And uh, management understands that and accounting understands that. And it's important to work at the general ledger of detail when you're doing this work, because uh, if you oversimplify things, I think you can go down the wrong garden path, put it that way. Do you find that to be the case in today's environment where a lot of times you're hearing in our industry, there's a labor shortage and people are looking or leaders are looking to just move straight into automation. Do you find that to be an aspect of just being short-sighted to your point that you just made, not having a full, you know, holistic view. And instead people are saying it's a labor shortage. We got, you know, we want to find ways to automate and it may not necessarily be, you know, the right decision. No, you're absolutely right, Chad. I've seen everything. I've seen back of the napkin math 
And people have made $100 million decisions on the basis of that. Uh, and I've seen companies take two years to try to an analyze the situation and make a, a, an intelligent decision. But what I'm seeing more often today than ever before is the decisions being made on the basis of an informed financial story, but more paramount is the whole labor uh, situation. And by that, I mean, if you tell a company, listen, the um, ROI on this particular solution for your business is 7% over the next 15 years, and that's the best it'll be, or that's a conservative estimate, it might get better, but that is what we think is realistic. They may well spring for a very, very expensive capital investment, despite that number, right? They, because they realize that it's enabling them to take out two, 200, 250, 300 people from the warehouse operation, which is a huge, huge pain point for them. And they're afraid that they won't be able to service customers or stores or whatever it is there's, you know, they're, they're, they're supporting. And, you know, you can't sell from an empty basket if you don't have people to do the work. You can't move goods. And there's, I think, a very paramount fear out there that this is what, where we're headed. And this is where Europe and Japan have been for the last 20 years ago. They were in this kettle of fish where they didn't have labor. Plus, they didn't have land. And that's why all the great automation solutions have emerged from those markets and have arrived here now, because by 2030, we will have... Over 20% of the um, U.S. population will be of retirement age or older, which is where Europe has been for decades. And today we're at around 14%. So, you know, if you look at the numbers, we're going to experience a 5 to 6% drop-off in the uh, labor pool between now and the end of the decade. So what we're experiencing now is not a, you know, a fallout of COVID or, or some anomaly that will renormalize. This is a very serious situation that's going to continue to degrade. So all the chaos happening at the airports, et cetera, just expect this is not going to go away anytime soon. The labor shortage is a very real situation, not only impacting warehousing, but transportation, all of the undesirable jobs in life that we take for granted, quite frankly, are going to go through this major, major struggle to attract and recruit and retain labor. So the, most companies, I think, are starting to become aware of that. Their immediate knee-jerk response has been to raise wages. And they're starting to wake up and smell the coffee and say, well, this is not the end-all solution. We have to figure out a way to, to, to do run our business with less labor. And so automation is skyrocketing. And you know, I predicted that would happen five years ago, and it's happening. It's definitely happening. Are, are there pockets in a fulfillment environment, Mark, that you would say it's just a, you know, it's a must have or a must do that we should look to automate? Uh, if you had so many dollars that you were going to allocate, where would you absolutely make sure in the business that's automated in our environments today and, you know, looking into the future? Mm. From the standpoint of warehousing, I'll hone in on just warehousing operations rather than back office IT. And I don't think I'll be saying anything new or, or revolutionary here. The vast majority of people in any fulfillment center or any distribution center period are, are, will always be basically picking and packing. Those are the areas of opportunity. And when you dive into those areas of opportunity, 
you start to drill down and say, well, what are the strategies that I could deploy, and especially in an e-commerce fulfillment environment where you have uh, a plethora of very small orders, right? That, you know, oftentimes are one or two items on the order. And, and how do you reduce labor in a manual environment? And then once you've done that, what does the economics look like of, uh, of an automated environment? So there's only really on the picking front, picking is 50, 55, maybe 60% of the labor force in almost any fulfillment center. And you have to start looking at ways to reduce that. So most companies in the world of manual will batch pick, you know, a large number of orders to uh, some type of a, uh, a cart or something like that. And then using sortation technology, maybe they'll sort those orders into the child orders from the parent order. So that's one approach. And then the other approach is to automate using goods to person picking where you don't have to retouch the product downstream. You immediately bring in the goods to the selector and the, the order picker can pick singles you can or multis. And then downstream, you can have automated packing processes for the singles. Right now, I don't know of anything for multis, but uh, at least for single line orders, if the right product characteristics are in order, then you can uh, automatically package those products with make-to-order packaging. So there's companies out there that are doing all of these things, and uh, and the headcount reduction is very substantial. The capex requirements are also very substantial. But those are really the fundamental opportunities right now that we see being deployed in the field. Yeah, I see a big emergence on the goods-to-person bot picking that you know just eliminate the travel path more than anything else that that certainly has taken off to repurpose some of the you know the inefficient or unproductive time in the buildings that's something that we've at least focused in here at Amware or starting to focus in I should say at uh, Amware and getting some of those deployed what about buildings and facilities mark just kind of changing topics for a second that's another area that I think a lot of people have grappled with in terms of, is it a single or, you know, a multi-fulfillment strategy across the company? At what point do you typically advise, you know, your customers on when to make it 2X or three, you know, three facilities across the country? Again, I know there may not be a standard and it's case by case, but what's your typical guidance when it comes to that question? It's a question that is not easy to answer. And I'll explain why the Freight cost associated with shipping merchandise really varies by the type of merchandise being handled, right? So if you're talking about very small and lightweight items that can ship nationally, you may not necessarily need many facilities across the country. If you're talking about very heavy, bulky products, you may need more because it costs a lot of money to move, especially by parcel goods nationally. So the service level is the number one question that a company has to has to define is you know how long do we desire to have between the receipt of a customer order and the delivery of the goods to their doorstep? If that is a two-day mandate or a three-day mandate, there's a huge difference in what the distribution network will look like. So one has to imagine a two-day mandate. If you were to take the distribution center and kind of draw a 500-mile circle around that building, that is what could be achieved using ground freight in a two-day time horizon. 
And similarly, if you wanted to go three days, you'd probably, you know, move that out by another 750 to 1,000 miles around the building. So therein lies the question. I, I would say, you know, let's say we were talking about, uh, I'll give you a great example. Shopify recently announced that they are seeking to remap their entire distribution network. They'd like to go to a, a two-day service level nationally for 95% of the U.S. population. So what does that equate to? Well, you're most likely going to end up with a distribution network of somewhere in the neighborhood of six buildings, right? You'd be up in the northern, uh, northeast of the country, somewhere in northern New Jersey, eastern PA, something like that. You'd be down in the southeast, probably Atlanta or something in that ballpark. And then in the Midwest, you'd be Chicago, Dallas. And then going out to the West Coast, you'd be Inland Empire and then somewhere up in, say, Seattle or Portland. So you'd have those bases covered. And then if you were to add another one, you'd maybe go to Denver because that's a, a very large market that could, that could cover that neck of the woods. So six, seven buildings gets you a two-day network if you're a high-volume fulfillment house. Then it comes down from there in terms of the size of the business. So a $50 million business couldn't afford that. A $500 million business may well be able to. Uh, and, and so that's the way I think it through is it, size of company, service level, types of merchandise being shipped. The formula is different for everybody, but those are sort of the main ingredients. You know, I, I think a lot of listeners that join, you know, the podcast that are listening to this program, many of them are in between. They've, you know, they've grown their business. They're scaling probably at a relatively rapid rate. They're, they're looking you know, for advice, one question that's on their mind is, you know, is it time to outsource their fulfillment if they're not currently with the 3PL? So they may be looking to, to get some type of strategic help with a consulting firm. They may be looking to open up the RFP process and, you know, find, find their fulfillment partner. What advice do you typically give those types of customers that, you know, have grown well beyond their small footprint and at that point where they want to start, you know, looking at outsourcing any particular advice that you would, you would offer them this afternoon, what should they do? What maybe should they not be doing as they uh, go on that journey? Well, outsourcing, you know, we help companies figure out the outsourcing piece of it. We also help them figure out the, insourcing piece of it if they're taking it back from the 3PL. Um, so I've seen the frustrations that come out of outsourcing. I've also seen the good things that come out of outsourcing. It's my old saying to the owners of businesses is nobody loves your baby as much as you do, right? When your baby's born, it may be ugly to the rest of the world, but you love your baby. And, and it's the yeah. same thing for distribution centers, you know, when you, you love your customers, if you're the founder of a company and you grew it from the, you know, from its inception, you love your customers and you'll do anything to please them. And you'll, you'll go through all kinds of, of backflips. Don't expect anybody else to behave that way, regardless of what's being said in the sales cycle. A 3PL is not your company, right? You don't have control over it. They're a supplier to you. So you may be in a co-located warehouse where there are other tenants that the 3PL is working with. They have one software system that runs the whole show. Your priorities for support may not be there 
priorities for support, you get into a lot of interesting issues. And um, I guess from my standpoint is I would much rather develop this skill in-house and internalize this as a core competency before I reached for the outsourcing button. Unless you're talking about a remote geographical sector of the country where the market is too small for me to invest in and I'm better off going in partnership with a 3PL into a shared warehousing environment where I'm paying a small portion of the overall fixed asset. You know, so for example, Hawaii is a market where nobody has enough momentum to go to Hawaii. It's expensive. Why not get a 3PL to service that market if we want to get fast service? Seattle, Portland area up in the Northwest, the same kind of thing for a lot of people. They they would rather go with a 3PL up there than develop that internally if they don't have the volume. So I look at geography, the remote outpost example I gave you, uh, mm-hmm. as being a, a perfectly good reason why you would go to a, a 3PL. But for the core of the business, if you're terrible at distribution and you're messing it up, then do something about it. Get the right people in place, invest in it. It should be a core competency. It's not going to go away tomorrow. You're always going to need it. So make sure that you've got it right. It's no different than the selling platform online that you've developed. You know, you may think that that's the end all, but fulfilling those orders underneath the hood, if you don't do that well, you'll lose business for sure. And and so to my mind, make sure that that's a world-class service level you've got there. In the short term, you may opt for a 3PL, but look at Shopify. I mean, they're pulling it in-house. They went 3PL at the beginning. And in the end, they decided to pull it in-house and uh, they would have, they've lost time and money as a result of going down that path to begin with. So well, I guess it's uh, the same feedback you had at the top of the conversation with automation. It's case by case. Uh, it's case by case. I've, I've seen many, I've seen many success stories come out of 3PL as well. So it's not, it's not black and white. It's very much, uh, it, it very much depends on the 3PL too, I might add, quality of the 3PL. Yep. So I, I think another piece of advice listeners want and, and that's on their mind is is just they recognize fulfillment's a pretty pretty busy job. It's fast paced, it's growing, it's a lot of things. And they're all searching for productivity tips, just how to how to be smarter uh, in their day. Do you have, Mark, any particular productivity tips? How do you begin your day? How do you how do you manage all the complexity and and uh, your schedule? Have you developed anything over the years that has worked for you that you may be able to pass on? Well, my firm, we don't invent anything like that. We are human sponges that go and learn from others and then gather that, internalize it, and then disseminate that information. I would say the learning experience that I've had when it comes to productivity is you don't know what you don't know, first of all. Well, you know, you go every day into your warehouse and all you know is what you see every day. The penny dropped for me one day when I was with a client and they said, you know, I came out of retail and I was running stores. And um, when I wanted to go see what my competitors were doing, I just crossed the street and go into their store and I could see how they were promoting and what they were doing and so forth. And uh, when it comes to warehousing, I can't go into their warehouse. They won't let me in. Right. So that's where somebody like a consultant comes into play where, you know, we are going into those warehouses and we're seeing the greatest hits and what works and what doesn't work. And when we notice something that's really shines, then we 
take that little idea and we put it in our treasure chest. And if you do that for enough years, you can really be a potent individual that can help companies. So when it comes to productivity, I mean, obviously the main thing that I would say to anybody is unless you measure it, you don't know what you're dealing with. So you have to start with a very, very solid measurement system that allows you to know, okay, whether it's units or cases or whatever it is you're handling, some people do it on pounds, how many units per hour do I accomplish at receiving it? at storage, at picking, at packing, at shipping, and so forth, and break down the job functions as granularly as needed, whereby you measure the throughput rates and the cost per unit associated with each job task. Then you can start to look at where and how much to improve. And I'd say the companies that I've seen that are are best in class in these areas layer on top of that engineered labor standards where they do time and motion studies and they hire engineers to come in to define exactly what the acceptable rate of work is, taking into consideration how many hours an individual has worked during the day, their training level, their age, fatigue factors, all these things. And then adding incentives on top of those labor standards. So if you really want to rock, I mean, if you really want to rock the house, give people incentives, give them a reason to work better, faster, but don't just tell them, I want you to work faster and I'll pay you for it. Tie into that incentive program, things like on-time attendance, days off, quality for things like accuracy. If they make a lot of mistakes or they, they damage equipment along the way, that's not desirable. That's not what you're trying to incentivize. Better. It's yeah, the whole package. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, an incentive system is not just about paying more money. It's also about making sure people show up to work when they're supposed to be there, making sure that orders go out the door without misshipments coming out of the out of the story, and then making sure your warehouse is clean and orderly and, and safe, despite the fact that people may be working harder. This episode is sponsored by Amware Fulfillment. Amware is a third-party fulfillment company that provides pick, pack, and ship services to established direct-to-consumer brands. With fulfillment centers in every region of the U.S., Amware supports one- to two-day ground delivery to 95% of the country. In short, Amware takes care of everything after the click. Learn more at AmwareFulfillment.com. Mark, I uh, I wish we had probably four more hours, but we unfortunately don't. I appreciate uh, the time today. Where can listeners go to just uh, get in touch with you or your company and just uh, learn more more about you? Oh, thank you. It's mwpvl.com. Everything, sir. All right. Fantastic. We'll, We'll get this out with the podcast. This concludes our episode of Unboxing Fulfillment, the modern B2C fulfillment podcast. Stay safe, everyone.